Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Successful investing requires planning for economic downturns. When the economy takes a hit, more people go to college to prepare for careers. That's why student housing is a recession-proof asset class. Current occupancy levels for student housing in the country's top university towns is well over 95%. Today's guest, Fred Pierce, president and CEO of Pierce Education Properties, is one of the country's top student housing operators with over 30,000 beds. He's acquiring more in popular college towns with super high demand that far exceeds supply. So today we have with us another highly accomplished, incredibly focused guy in a great niche of the market, student housing. He is the president and CEO of Pierce Education Properties, and he is Fred Pierce. Fred, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Yep. I am super excited. We got connected through a mutual acquaintance. I've had the uh, privilege of uh, being in, in one of your opportunities that I'm super excited about. And so I guess before you got into student housing, before you got into real estate, uh, what's the early Fred Pierce story? Where, where did you start out in life and what was kind of your, uh, your path? Yeah. You know, it really started when I was a student at San Diego State University and I was majoring in finance and my dad had been a corporate executive with a Fortune 500 company. And I think at least going into college, I thought that might be what my path would be. But my instructors, my faculty members, in particularly uh, Professor Bob Wilbur, kind of showed me the, the light towards commercial real estate in my, uh, my first two internships, one of which was with Bank of America doing real estate appraisals uh, to support new home loans. And then, and the second one was also doing appraisals, but this time commercial appraisals with a, a real estate consulting firm uh, that did market research and feasibility studies uh, and appraisals. And and I finished my college career uh, as an intern for Goodkin, and then they gave me a full time job, and and that uh, kind of pointed me in in real estate. And I decided when I was in college that my ambition in life was to own my own real estate company. Didn't know what kind at that point in time. But that was my ambition dating all the way back to when I was in my early 20s. Got it. And I see on your profile that you went to Granada Hills High School. And so did you grow up in the Valley or? So, so uh, partly, yes. So I, I lived all over, you know, my folks were born and raised in Maine and the first in our family in 340 years to move out of New England. And my dad's first job was in Chicago where I was born and lived for two years and then Every time he got a new territory or a new promotion, we moved. So we went from Chicago to Des Moines to Minneapolis to San Francisco. Uh, and then junior high and high school were in the San Fernando Valley in L.A. before I came down in 1980 to go to San Diego State, uh, where I did my undergraduate and graduate studies. Got it. Well, as a kid, this is just a detour here, minor detour. As a kid, my brothers went to camp up in Maine for many, many years. We actually grew up in Cleveland. Where in Maine were your folks from? Uh, so my, my dad was from Augusta, the state uh, capital, and, and his dad had been a, an engineer that actually designed every existing free span bridge in the state of Maine today. And, 
And, my, and his uncle was the forestry commissioner of the state of Maine. So Augusta, which was the state capital, my mom lived down the road in a town called Gardner. And they met at University of Maine at Orna. Got it. Got it. Well, that's a state that's lost population. But but anyway, beautiful state. And so you worked for Goodkin, I believe. And then um, what did you do from there and what ultimately got you into this niche? So, so I was always keeping you know, my eye on an opportunity to, to have my own company. Uh, and again, I didn't know where that was going to go. But, but Goodkin was a very high profile, really the first company to pioneer market research in the student housing sector. I mean, excuse me, in the commercial real estate sector. And they did subdivisions and office buildings and industrial parks and hotels doing market studies and feasibility studies, financial analysis and appraisals. And their real focus, especially with master plan communities. And back in the 80s, most of those were, were golf course communities, you know, like Castle Pines with the Nicholas Golf Course in Denver and La Paloma, the Western La Paloma Resort and Nicholas Golf Course, you know, in Tucson and Cedar Creek, you know, a 10,000 acre master plan community uh, around the Shadow Glen Golf Course, um, which was a Jay Morris, uh, Tom Weisskopf and Tom Watson, you know, collaboration and so I got to be involved in all these really exciting commercial real estate development projects, and it sort of fanned the flames of my my interest in doing that. And and then in the late '80s, the the then big eight accounting firms were aggressively pursuing market research, real estate market research firms, really as a venue to access their client base for tax and audit services. So ultimately, Goodkin, in I think it was 1987, got acquired by KPMG. So I went with that merger, uh, and then and then the accounting firm Price Waterhouse decided they wanted to get in that business in 1988. But rather than buying the company, they just grabbed a couple of industry leaders, and so I was one of those. and And I ultimately ran the Western United States real estate consulting for Price Waterhouse when I got my first big break, which was to become a principal uh, for a, a, a real estate commercial real estate firm in West Los Angeles doing apartment acquisitions, office acquisitions. And so that was, uh, that was 1993, so 11 years out of school. I finally got in as a, as a principal. When finally, uh, my real big break came when uh, one of my old consulting clients was San Diego State University, my alma mater, where we wrote a plan to set up a redevelopment district and upzone and entitle all the land around the university. And you know, after a couple of missed starts with a couple of really large developers, you know, they came back and they gave me the opportunity to take over the project. And, and that's when I found the predecessors to Pierce Education Properties in 1995. You were a principal in that firm in L.A. in 1993, mostly multifamily, I think you said. You were awfully young. So, I mean, you were like kicking but, and uh, also to get that gig at KPMG to head up their West Coast, am, am, I, am I crazy? I mean, you were like in your late 20s, early 30s, right? Yeah, so, th- well, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, when I was in my late 20s was when Pricewaterhouse appointed me to run the entire Western United States. And, you know, I had, I had the good fortune that Mr. Goodkin had been so prominent and so popular, especially as a public speaker, that he couldn't keep all up with all of his requests to do public speaking. So if he couldn't do one of those, he turned them over to me. And, and you know, so I became a pretty prominent, you know, public speaker, speaking to, you know, groups of a thousand people at, at CBRE and 
and chambers of commerce all over the place. And, and it built a reputation, you know, for me. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, the Wall Street Journal called me right after the Rodney King riots up in Los Angeles uh, and, and asked me what the impact on the real estate market was going to be, you know, in, in greater Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, so I, I, had, I had to reach all the way, all across, all across the country uh, with, with media, with print and broadcast media as well. So. Wow. Unbelievable. What was your first student housing, for lack of a better term, deal? Yeah, so it was it was at San Diego State, where uh, the redevelopment area was 131 acres of largely privately owned land, you know, in the several city blocks surrounding San Diego State. And so the first project we completed there uh, was completed in 1997. Uh, it was called Piedra del Sol, which is, means uh, the Stone of the Sun, which is uh, the nickname for the Aztec calendar. And uh, so we got a Pacific Coast Builders Conference you know, Gold Nugget Award, and that was right really at the onset of the student housing sector, which really started in the mid-90s. So we were one of the pioneers, you know, in the space uh, as one of the, you know, original companies pursuing, you know, purpose-built student housing, meaning complexes that were specifically designed with a unit mix targeted at students. Really? That, to me, is crazy. So what was it before then? I mean, clearly, there's been student housing at universities, you know, in this country, probably for the last 300 years. So give me the distinction. Yeah. So, you know, historically in public universities, they have dormitories on the campus and they're designed to house the freshmen. And then once you finish your freshman year, historically, you move off campus. And so around most, most large universities, there's a, a, a good size inventory of multifamily apartments. And, you know, with the way they were developed before this sector, you know, came to be was they were just like every other apartment complex, right? They were a mixture of studios, one bedroom and two bedroom units. And the students, you know, moved in and signed leases jointly and severally, meaning, you know, that, that all the roommates were responsible for the whole rent legally and con contractually. And that's the way it happened. And, and then when uh, the demographics changed and, and they called it the, the echo of the baby boom. Or in, in California, we called it Tidal Wave 2. Uh, and in the decade of the 2000s, student enrollment in America grew by 38% or 3.8% a year. Just, just phenomenal enrollment growth uh, with the echo of the baby boom and the, and the size of the, of the college age population driving that. So what happened was the industry started building these complexes, which were largely four-bedroom, four-bathroom, and three-bedroom, three-bathroom, uh, units uh, that were leased by the bedroom. So you don't have to worry if you've got a deadbeat roommate who doesn't pay their rent. You're only obligated for your own bedroom and you've got your own bathroom as well. So that was really popular with the students and their parents would guarantee their lease, but but only their bedroom lease, not for their, their other roommates as well. And then amenities got added. You know, So these are like a resort hotel with resort swimming pools and spas and fitness centers and tanning beds and study rooms and sand volleyball courts and basketball courts and, you know, sort of you name it. Uh, there's those kinds of high-end amenities, but it's designed with students in mind because you won't find four-bedroom apartment units, you know, out in a, a general marketplace. When people need four bedrooms, they usually are married with kids, <laughs> you know, but students, the rent is lower because we can charge less per bedroom for a four than we can for a three or a two or a one, because they're, they're comparatively more expensive to build 
than as a four-bedroom. So it's, it's really evolved over the last 25 years. You know, this is why, amongst other reasons, why I just love, love doing this. Because you know what? I had no idea. I didn't know what you just described. I had no clue. It also explains, which is also a tangent that neither of us need to go into, it also explains why getting into these schools like San Diego State is so incredibly hard now because the percentage of the population that's going to college has just gone through the roof. In my, my impression when I went to school, and I hate to say, but you and I are about the same age, I just kind of assumed back then, well, everybody went to college, but in fact, that case clearly isn't true. And what you're saying is a whole new sector has emerged in the last 20 plus years of housing built specifically for students, you know, with the number of bedrooms, amenities, I'm sure location has a lot to do with it that just didn't exist prior to that time. Am I summarizing it, you know, accurately? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that the space has become institutional. And, you know, so when large institutional investors picture pension funds, you know, decide they want to put 10% of their total fund in real estate, And then within real estate, they used to put it in what they called the four main food groups, right? It would be in multifamily, in retail, in office, and in industrial. Well, nowadays, they're looking for greater diversification amongst real estate asset classes. And student housing is is recession resistant and actually has recently proven that it's also COVID resistant in terms of the impacts on the the sector. Uh, And enrollments go up at universities where the economy you know goes bad either kids graduate and they can't get a job so they continue on into graduate school or they they look at it if somebody's getting laid off they look at it as an opportune time to to retool themselves and go back to school so we do great in an up cycle uh, but we also do incredibly well in a down cycle so it's a great diversifier in a real estate portfolio to have a niche you know asset class like student housing my day job, I'm involved in doing advertising for vocational schools, not four-year, but it's the same thing. Yeah, I, I get it. Education does well when the economy goes south. So I get it loud and clear. And, and in my mind, you know, for the expense of the great amenity filled, and even though, yes, it's more affordable by the bedroom, if it's four bedrooms, I get that, but it's still pretty expensive. You know, if you're a parent, you know, paying rent for a kid that's 19 years old, which is exactly what I am, by the way. But in my mind, it's kind of like there's still going to be in a really bad economy. Let's just call it that. There's still such a finite amount of inventory in great locations at the San Diego States, at the, you know, UC Boulders, at, you know, University of Michigan, you name it, that even if there's a terrible economy, you're still going to have a lot of people relatively in this country, parents with enough money to send their kids to those schools and pay for their student housing. For sure. And, and you actually hit on, you know, part of what is our strategy, which is, you know, we go to big uh, division one football schools. It's actually part of our acquisition criteria because the admissions demand is the greatest at those types of schools. And in most instances, there are barriers to entry. It's difficult to find developable land. You know, and in fact, uh, more recently, developers have been moving into mid-rise construction because if they can assemble a little posted stamp size lot close to one of these big you know, Division I football schools, you know, the way they can get a critical mass size of a project is they, they have to go vertical. You know, because in the in the 2000s, they were building stuff, 
you know, a mile from campus where there were some green fields and they could build more garden style, you know, but today what they're building is more pedestrian and it's more vertical. And when it goes vertical, it's more expensive to build. So there, so there is actually an interesting phenomenon is that the stuff that was the new expensive student housing in the decade of the 2000s is actually now the more affordable student housing because the stuff that goes up 10 and 15 and 20 stories is, is easily $1,000 a month or more, uh, you know, even in, uh, you know, a, a, co- a small college town, you know, whereas the stuff that's a mile away from campus that still has all of those amenities and, and the great unit mixes, you know, you can sometimes get it for $500 per bed per month. So now you've got a wide array of product and a wide array of price points that can better cater to, you know, the different income levels of today's college students. Interesting. So given the barrier to entry that you just described, you know, your strategy of going to D1 schools, which I mean, makes it seems absolutely bulletproof, but it seemed to me there'd be a limited amount of opportunities. Is that how do you find the opportunities and, you know, how many deals are you doing and, you know, all that stuff? Yeah. So, well, so the one thing is, is that, you know, over the last decade, for sure, the industry has been consolidating uh, um, dramatically. And so, so the big are getting bigger, you know, and, and, and we were, you know, we logged ourselves. So we've been in the top 25, both owners and managers of student apartments in America ever since they've been surveying that, which started back in 2010. Student Housing Business Magazine tr- tracks that. But back in 2010, you know, I think our portfolio was something like 3,500 beds to be in the top 25. You know, and, and today it, it's more like you need 10,000 beds to be in the top 25. So what's happened is institutional capital has found companies like Pierce Education Properties and, and our competitors and is making capital available. And so we're buying up the inventory. The, the small group of the of the biggest owners are buying it. And we're still finding, you know, plenty of opportunities because, you know, the b- developers have been de- delivering between... 40 and 60,000 beds a year for at least a decade. So there's both new construction to buy, you know, as well as a lot of the owners aren't owning something forever. You know, they're in a commingled fund that has a finite shelf life that has to raise the money and invest the money over a two year period, then hold the investment for five years. And then it goes into a two year liquidation period if it's what's called a closed end fund. So ultimately those assets are gonna turn over. And, you know, those of us who've become prominent in the space, you know, find that there's ample inventory for us to find, you know, good deals at good universities with good properties. So with the amount of money going after these properties from the institutions have, and you say, you know, this is resulting in a lot of um, good deals, just the fact that the amount of that's coming on the market because people are sun, not sunsetting, but, you know, the fund runs its course and so they have to sell. But is it not just every bit as competitive as general multifamily with this, you know, super cap rate compression or? That's a very, very good question. And, you know, what's happened in the last year is that because cap rates have compressed so much in conventional multifamily, right, maybe down to the low threes, maybe even high twos, according to what market that you're in. So that capital that's been uh, uh, aggressive in multifamily is now looking for yield. And, and now when they turn to student housing, you know, and when, when yields are, are available perhaps in the fours versus, you know, down in the low threes or high twos, 
that does look comparatively very attractive for a housing product, and especially one that's recession resistant. Uh, and conventional multifamily is not so recession you know, resistant uh, as student housing is. So there still is a spread, and that spread is attractive, and it is enticing capital from conventional over into student. But then there's, there's also institutional capital that just wants to be in student, and it's part of their, their overt and their planned asset allocation. You know, 18%, according to PREA, um, of, of institutional investors in 2021 had an allocation to student housing as part of their investment strategy, 18%. You know, that's a, a trillions of dollars of capital. So there's certainly a, a good amount of, of capital that's available that wants to come into the space. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Do you have a propensity, I guess, now and looking forward in the next I don't know, 12, 24, 36 months to do more ground up as opposed to acquisitions? What, I mean, what's your view on, on that? Yeah, so since we took the company national, you know, so we were the master developer for San Diego State for, for over 10 years. Uh, and we went, we went, took the company and the platform national in 2006. And since then, we've now established ourselves as one of the largest buyers, you know, of student housing. So while we are developers, um, and we, uh, we have two ground-up projects under construction at San Diego State right now uh, that was referenced a little earlier in our call. The, still, the majority of what we do do is, is buy, own, and operate. You know, we've acquired over the, that time frame since 2007, you know, almost 30,000 beds at some 30 universities in 26 states, you know, across the country. And so we continue to do that, but we're, we're also selectively looking for development opportunities. Right now, those that are within a, a day trip of our office in San Diego. So some of the large national student housing developers are truly national, and they're building all over the country. Uh, we're, uh, we're focused on stuff that is, you know, a, a Southwest Airlines flight from San Diego, so I can get there in the morning, get back at night if I want. Uh, and of course, right here in our backyard. So we will selectively be looking at those development deals as well. Um, but they take a long time. You know, we, we were four years in pre-development planning before we got under construction on these two deals at San Diego State, four years. I mean, in that same four years today, you know, I could probably buy between 800 million and a billion dollars worth of existing student apartments. And so, you know, we need to balance how much business we can do with how long it takes to do that business. Why does it take so long? It's an obvious question, but I ask it anyway. Um, yeah. It is, it is the discretionary review process. Uh, just takes a long time. We certainly also got impacted by COVID and, and all of the city workers then working from home. And, you know, that, that made it more difficult to access, you know, the, the staff to, 
to get your projects through and get them, you know, get them approved. So, so those are, those are California timeframes. You know, if I was in Nevada, by way of example, you know, I could potentially buy a piece of land and be under construction in 12 months, you know, as opposed to four years. And it's just the way California, you know, is, is that, you know, you, you've got community groups and you've got cities and they do not move fast. <laughs> okay. It's a California thing. Okay. Do you manage property that you don't own? We do, um, but we do it on a selective basis. And generally it's when we're approached. So, you know, we've got, you know, equity partners that we're doing joint ventures with. And, you know, if all of a sudden they've got a, a property that, that they think could use our uh, seasoned experience, you know, they've, you know, they, they then ask us to come in and do it. So we've got a handful of properties that we manage as a third party fee property manager. And then, of course, we manage everything that we own. So that makes us one of the top 25 you know, managers in the country. Uh, and we do do a little bit of third party, but we, we don't do a huge amount of it, you know, kind of by design, because we want to make sure our senior executives are able to give personal attention to every asset that we operate. And, you know, if all of a sudden you're operating, you know, 50,000 beds for, for other people, you just can't, you know, it's, it's, it's middle management and the people on the property who you're relying on, you're not getting the attention from, from the senior management team when, when your portfolio gets that big. I got it. Across your portfolio, what percent occupancy are you? <laughs> Interestingly, in the middle of COVID, and, and with the exception of a property that we knew we went into that was going to take a couple of years to turn it around because of its size and the occupancy when we were brought in. So just setting that one property aside, we're between 995 and 100% occupied across our entire portfolio. Now, this is the first year that we've had that much success. You know, normally with the kind of universities we select, they're almost always at least 95% occupied. But, you know, this year, the national occupancy in student housing was up over 4% as it was compared to last year, you know, in the, in the middle of the pandemic. The kids wanted to come back to school and they're back at school and they want to live at school. Uh, so we're super highly occupied. You know, last year, my kid was a freshman and there was no in-person classes. I mean, you know all this because it's your what you do. But, you know, exactly. I mean, even though it sucked, quite frankly, and it was terrible because he was a freshman and there was a lot of challenging stuff that, you know, wouldn't do either of us any good for me to go into. But let's just put it this way. All that being said, he'd still rather be there than sitting at home with us. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the truth. I, I heard a story relayed to me that the uh, president at the University of Florida was talking to one of his students and who had been home but had come back uh, to, to live in, in Gainesville, you know, when co courses were largely being delivered, you know, online. And, and the president said, well, I'm interested to know, you know, so-and-so, why did you come back, you know, the campus when, when your whole itinerary is online? And he says, because I was tired of having my mother every day tell me to make my bed. I had to get out of there and come back to school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Well, and so, and so that really is, that is the mindset of, uh, you know, a college student. And, and by the way, as we all know, that went to, those of us that, and most of us that went to college, college is so much more than what you learn in the classroom, right? It's living on your own. It's growing up as a young adult. It's making mistakes and it's being with your friends and you can't do that from your bedroom at home. And so, you know, in the end, and also, you know, the young demographic 
is a you know comparatively low risk demographic, right? And frankly, they're probably safer at school around kids their age uh, than they than they might be if they are at home. And and picture this, you know. So when COVID broke into a pandemic in the spring of 2020, you know, out of 18,000 beds in our portfolio over that next year, less there were less than 30 reported positive cases of COVID-19 at our properties, less than 30. Uh, if you do the math on what that percentage is, it's, it's infinitesimal. And only one of those residents ended up going to the hospital and it was because she contracted pneumonia uh, and she recovered. And all of our residents that, that had positive tests and reported them, you know, recovered in, in short order. I'm certain more than that had the virus, they just didn't know it. <laughs> it was maybe like a cold for them and, and nothing much more. Uh, so it was a safe demographic for the kids to be at school as well. Yeah, I mean, the kids don't, it's, it's people that are over 65 and people that are have different uh, medical conditions, et cetera. What, what would you say, and in, inevitably this varies by campus, but across the board, what would you say is average rent per room? So, you know, it's, it's, it sort of falls into two areas. The newer product. Uh, so if you've got something that's under construction or has been delivered in the last couple of years, then it probably has got four digits in the rent, right? So it's $1,000 and up. And, uh, you know, in, in higher cost areas, it's more. If you're in big urban areas, if you're in Seattle, uh, frankly, if you're in San Diego, uh, if you're in Boston, right? But even in, in a college town, like Ann Arbor would be, would be that in those mid-rises. Mid and then there's also the product where it's about a mile or so from campus. We call them drive properties because they run a shuttle that takes the kids to, to campus. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you can find rents in the, in the five and $600 per bed per month. These are all 12-month leases, mind you, because after the kids go home from school after their freshman year, and then they realize that their parents have rules on them when they're at home that they don't if they live by themselves at college, they don't like those rules, and so they all stay at college, you know, in the summers after their freshman year, by and large. And they either get a part-time job, they have an internship, maybe they get to take the summer off, but their parents are paying their rent. Uh, but they're 12-month they're leases, and they're staying at school. We're in the middle of this conversation with our kid right now as we speak, and so and we're lobbying for him to stay. And you know, we we don't even want him at home at this point, you know, just because he doesn't belong home anymore. We love him. We're excited to see him whenever. But so my kid's property manager has been starting to grind him literally a month ago. So let's call it beginning of October. He's been there at this point, let's say a month and a half. She's already grinding him to sign a lease for the next year, saying it's you know you better hurry up. Is she just uh, grinding him to get it? Is she, is she incentivized to, she gets us, you know, a commission as she gets him uh, by, uh, you know, the end of October or whatever, or is there, or is it the real deal that you snooze, you lose, there's that much demand? It is the real deal. Uh, and for a couple of reasons, you know, now there are some university markets that are really early to lease, some a little bit later to lease, but almost universally, the, the lowest rent that's going to be offered is going to be a rent for a renewal. So if it's your son and he lives there this year, then almost everybody in the sector starts leasing for the next academic year in September and, and not later than October, right? So it is. They've just moved in and you're leasing, and there, and there likely is some kind of a renewal incentive. 
And, and what happens is uh, that the renewal rate is going to be a, a slightly lower rate than that for a new lease. And then the rents go up. They, they, they're on a very planned basis. And as the leasing thresholds you know, increase, then the rents increase as well. So, you know, generally speaking, you'll, you'll, um, you'll secure your space, you'll be able to keep the apartment that you've got, and you'll get it at the lowest possible rent if you, if you lease early. And if you wait, you're going to end up paying more for rent. And that's just the way that the system works. And so they are telling you it's factual what they're saying, that they're, you know, that, that people are starting to, to rent, you know, rent early. I mean, I, I, I know we're talking about Indiana here, and we've got really strong leasing. I mean, I think, you know, sitting here in November, you know, we're we're like a third lease already for, for the next academic year. And, you know, once you get into the spring, you know, we'll be anticipate we're going to be sold out. <laughs> so if you want to get something, you might as well get while the getting's good and at the lowest rent. What a great business. On the acquisition side, you know, like in multifamily, the common theme, you know, for, well, stuff that's not class A per se, that's a different story. But even then you have this component. There's typically a value add story to most of these acquisitions. And I'm wondering if in the student housing sector, it's the same thing where maybe you had an operator that you know had, had management that wasn't as effective as they could be and you can go in and you know effectively go in with, turn it into a higher cap by efficiencies kind of thing. Yeah, so there's you know, opportunities across the risk return spectrum in investing in student housing, like in other kinds of, of real estate. And so, you know, generally speaking, the relatively new stuff, the, you know, developer just built it and opened up, it's full, uh, and maybe they're a merchant builder, meaning their business model is to build it, lease it up, and then sell it. Now, that those are core properties, and there's not really much value add, but then that's for the kind of capital out there that, that wants lower leverage, and is looking for distributions, right? They're looking for cash flow so they can make pension payments to pensioners, you know? Um, and so that's core stuff. And then on the value add side, you hit on one, which is where there's an operational turnaround opportunity. And by and large, you can find those when you have student apartments that are operated by a non-student housing operator, by a conventional student housing operator. Maybe they rent them by the unit joint and several, and you can get higher rents if you rent it by the bedroom because uh, the, the students take less risk and they're willing to pay more rent to just have to pay for their own bedroom and not, the rest, not have to be, take the risk of their, their roommates. So there are operational turnarounds, as you described, uh, all the time. There, there's also ACK rehab uh, opportunities that are value-add in their, their return characteristics. So picture something that's 10 years old. Maybe it's got carpeting throughout the living room and, and maybe it's got uh, sheet vinyl on the floor in the kitchen, and maybe it's got old white appliances, but what the kids want today is either, you know, stainless steel or black appliances, and, you know, they want faux wood floors in all the common areas, so the kitchen and the hallways and the, and the living room. Uh, you can upgrade the furniture, and so you buy the properties, you make those improvements, and then you can get higher rents, right? So it's a similar strategy that they do with, you know, class B to, to class B plus or A minus, you know, in multifamily, same opportunity in, in student housing. Uh, and it seems like the shelf life is is shorter for for improvements, interior improvements, that you can, we can find properties as, as young as five years old where there's still maybe interior unit upgrade opportunities or or repurposing of amenities to create value add type returns. But yeah, there's, there's definitely value add available 
and there's core, you know, which is just a stabilized property that kind of clip coupons and collect your rent. And do you tend to gravitate towards one or the other, I guess, given where your capital sources are? Uh, so, so good question as well. And, you know, and, and, and I would say that we as an operator do do more value add than we do core. Uh, and, and the reason is simple is there's exponentially more value add capital out there, you know, that's looking for mid-teens returns, you know, than there is core capital that maybe is looking for, a, you know, an 8% levered and maybe a 10 or 11% levered return. Um, there's just more capital on the value add side, uh, you know, and frankly, more, more opportunity for our company to make make a promote, which is a, a disproportionate share of the profits, you know, as the returns get higher. So it's it's for, for both of those reasons, plenty of opportunities, lots of capital that wants to do it. And it's, it's good for us and it's good for our investors. Got it. It makes all the sense in the world. In terms of your company, Fred, at corporate, what does it look like? How many employees do you have? And is there a number two guy or gal that you have running it? Or what, what does that look like? So from the beginning, knowing that this is a, an asset management, you know, intensive space, you know, picture this, if you have an apartment building, uh, maybe you get eight to 10% of your residents, their rent, their, their lease expires every month. Right. And then some of them renew and others move out and new ones move in. So you're you're turning over, you know, a small percentage of your inventory every month as they move out. Right. You take it, you take a day or two, you, you, you clean the carpet, you paint the walls, you get it ready and boom, it's ready to be rented again. And in our business, they, uh, students all move in at the same time and they move out on the same time. So, if you know, our leases expire across our portfolio on July 31st and then new move ins are usually mid August. So I've got. You know, I've got two weeks to turn over 10,000 bets <laughs> across the country. So, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. You need to know what you're doing and the like. Um, but, but you know, we do have a, a, a large portfolio. We've got 150 employees. Uh, the majority of those, let's call it 125 of those, are in the management company operating the properties. And from our senior perspective, you know, we've got one of the most senior teams in the industry and our our top executives that form our executive committee collectively have operated more than a hundred thousand beds in their careers, both at Pierce and before Pierce, at more than a hundred universities in 39 states. And so we've got, you know, myself as the president and CEO, got a chief financial officer and a, a vice president and controller uh, in the corporate office. We have a uh, a national director um, of uh, of mar- leasing and marketing that oversees that on all the properties. We've got a head of property operations who's dealing with, you know, all of our individual property managers on property and that those managing those and, and the capital expenditures. And we've got our acquisitions group. So our chief chief uh, investment officer uh, is here in his department uh, that pursues acquisitions. And then we've got a senior VP for asset management and development. Uh, and he oversees you know, our development projects, as well as monitors the investment performance of our of our portfolio uh, on a regular recurring basis as well. The niche is so impressive for so many different reasons. So you're talking about, like you were saying, top 25 people in the space. How many sponsors are there operators in the country, I guess, of any scale? And you probably don't have the exact number, obviously, that just specialize in student housing and do nothing else. I would say the large majority of that top 25 are 
entirely student housing companies. And they all, almost all, are fully vertically integrated, so they've got their own management companies, so they manage what they own. Some of them have large third-party, you know, portfolios of, of management, you know, as, as well. So there are some, some of the, de- the larger developers have actually moved, diversified the other way, where they started in student housing, but they, uh, they now also are doing ground-up development in multifamily, conventional multifamily as well. So they've, they've kind of got, you know, two strategies going on on the, on the development side. Uh, but on the operating side, the majority of the big operators are uh, exclusively student housing companies uh, out of that top 25. But I guess I phrased the question the wrong way. I didn't mean to ask about the top 25. I just did that for frame of reference. I worded the, the question incorrectly. I'm just wondering, like, if you think of multifamily, let's say 50 units or more, how many companies own 50 units or more in the con- in the country, it's thousands, right? So if you were to say how many people own uh, 50 beds or more, 100 beds or more in student housing in the country, is it hundreds? Is it thousands? Uh, it's probably not published anywhere, but I'm just trying to get the sense of how many people just specialize in, in student housing. It's not necessarily coincidental, but I would say that, that 25 or 30 companies around the country who specialize in student housing and as opposed to maybe they own some student apartments or maybe they own some apartments occupied by students. But our sector is largely defined by that top 25. So it's very different than conventional multi. Of course, the inventory of student apartments purpose built nationwide is, you know, a little over a million beds. So, you know, we're also not anywhere close to this, you know, size. I mean, we're, 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 we're very, very small compared to conventional multifamily, but, um, but it is a consolidated, you know, niche space and, you know, and you need about 10,000 beds to be, you know, viewed as a, as a player. Well, this is going to be a kind of a softball and it's this. So what you've done is you have just specialized in such a tight, definable niche, which makes you more efficient operationally from acquisitions, from operations, in every other way. Is this a big part of your business philosophy overall is just to get, and maybe just such a rhetorical question, but that, you know, just own one thing, know it, and is that kind of been your your thought process all along? Yeah, you know, and one of the things that we've learned from the, the REIT industry is you'll notice it, it, for the super majority of REITs, um, you know, which are publicly traded, you know, commercial real estate companies, right? They're almost all, you know, laser focused in whatever they do. You know, you're an office REIT, you're an industrial REIT, you're a multifamily REIT. Uh, there's one student housing REIT, American Campus Communities. And, you know, and I looked at that and what I learned was that Wall Street values a strategy. They value an expertise versus if you're being all things to all peoples and, and, you know, I could just be a real estate deal junkie, then it's hard to define who you are. And, and therefore, it's hard for those that look at companies like that to invest in or potentially buy for them to really understand who do you benchmark them against? How do you value them? So, so I, when I got and landed with an opportunity to be in this student housing space, that's when the light went on that says that was the kind of company. I didn't know, at, remember the beginning of the call, what kind of real estate company I was going to have. And then when it just so happened that the, my first project was a gigantic university real estate project at San Diego State, that's when the light went on and I decided I was going to stay laser focused. 
and I can be across the investment spectrum, right? Core, core plus, value add, opportunistic, ground up development, you know, can be in, in all of those while still staying focused in my space. And at the end of the day, I, my desire was to build a company, not just do deals. And therefore, get a multiple on your company at some point when it comes time to sell the company. It's an actual operating business uh, as opposed to, you know, just an amalgamation or an accumulation of a resume of deals having done. But at the end of the day, you don't have anything left to sell because if you're retiring and you're not doing any more deals, there's there's nothing left to sell. So, So I learned that there could be value associated with it. And, you know, and as such, it's, it's helped us gain visibility by being so laser focused as well. I get it loud and clear. Well, if one, Fred, were to want to get a hold of you and converse in, in any way, shape or form, how would they do that? Yeah. So for, first of all, you know, our, our, our website has a ton of information, you know, about us and it's at pepstudent.com and that's pep, P-E-P, which is the acronym for Pierce Education Property. So it's pepstudent.com. Uh, and our phone number uh, is, and we are essential uh, service providers of housing. So we've been working in the office throughout the pandemic and can be reached at 619-297-0400 uh, here in our San Diego corporate office. Got it. Fred, I very, very much appreciate it. And, um, you know, hey, you are a man with a plan and uh, you're going to obviously keep killing it as long as you want to. Well, appreciate the uh, conversation, Roger. I've enjoyed it. Fred, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Be well. Bye-bye.